Well, if you're uh, new with us here this morning, you have joined us on uh, this journey that we have been taking through 1 Timothy. We have kind of crossed right into the halfway point. We are in the back half of this little letter um, in chapter 4, starting in verses 1 through 5. Uh, we're committed as a church to working through the scriptures, verse by verse and line by line, that we might teach the whole counsel of God's word to his people. Uh, that we might learn to hear it, know it, and obey it, uh, that we might go about our lives reaching those who don't know him. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter or later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid merely to be gratefully shared in by those, excuse me, I think I can read, who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this section of text this morning, um, Lord, I pray that you would open hearts who maybe have hardened them, uh, even seared uh, their consciences and their hearts towards the message that is here today. I pray, Lord, that as, as a speaker that you would use my mouth as a tool, Lord, to reach the hearts of your people. Lord, we pray for our nation, that you would reach the hearts of our nation, that you would turn us uh, back towards you. I pray for each and everyone in here, Lord, that, uh, that if uh, someone here does not know you, Lord, that this would be the day that they would give up living life on their own, seeking their own pleasure and desire, recognize their sin, Lord, and turn to you. Lord, For all of the rest of us who do know you, I pray that you would draw us near, Lord. We'll give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. In Exodus chapter 20, Yahweh had given the Ten Commandments to the 12 tribes of Israel. The first two of which have to do with God being the very creator and an absolute cessation of the worship of any other god. The first commandment is found in chapter 20, verse 3, and we are very familiar with it. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second is found in verse 4, just following it up there, where Yahweh says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a Jealous God. It's not too long, just 12 chapters later, Yahweh has been speaking with Moses up on the mountain while the 12 tribes remain down in the valley. And we read this in chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled out about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, 
tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Rizal, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, quote, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Verse 6. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, who was up on the mountain, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly, now listen here, turned aside from the way which I have commanded them. We see this language turned aside all throughout the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 11, we read of another turning away as the Lord laments his making Saul the first king of Israel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. The Old Testament, as you know, is full of examples of unfaithful people and a faithful God, a people who fall away from that which they have professed as truth, committing what we call apostasy. It is that term that we have come to know or learn or believe a set of truths, a set of teachings, a set of doctrines, but we actually turn away from them. We're not necessarily deceived away, and in some point of of misunderstanding, we have understood them well, but we have turned away from them. As we see in Exodus chapter 20 there, uh, the Lord could not have been any clearer. You shall not make for yourself any idol, any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath. And in just a couple chapters later, what are they doing but tearing their gold off, fashioning an idol to worship? It happens all over in the New Testament. Also, to those, and we Uh, call it apostasy. They are people who profess to be committed to Christ, but their lives do not prove them out to be telling the truth. They may call themselves Christians, but when they face trials or their religious motives are challenged by the truth of God's word, they fall away. They are Christian by title only. These are people like Judas Iscariot, Demas of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and most recently in our study, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had been cast out of the church in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. After the description of false teaching in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, the Spirit inspired Paul to write out the prescription for how to conduct oneself in church, which is the pillar in the support of truth. And he defines godly leadership in chapters 2 and 3. Then he followed those instructions up with an early church hymn that defines the truth that is most often denied by those who fall away. That is the deity of Christ. We studied that last week. Those truths of Christ's deity have led us today to a warning about those who fall away from the truth and teach others to do the same. Beloved, 
the world and its religions will tell you, celebrate your truth. The more and more we move into this age, you cannot listen to anything on the news, anything on the television that is not telling you to just celebrate who you are. Don't let anybody else tell you that there is such a thing as truth, and that could not be any further away from the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the universe. Obedience to God's word without heart reformation Heart reformation often leads to cold and dead religion, and we're going to see that it did so here, and that is the warning in the text. It looks spiritual on the outside, but it rejects God on the inside. Beloved, if in our hearts we celebrate God's truth, we will not commit apostasy, and that is why it takes the Spirit of God living in us to stay on track. Anyone can be religious for a period of time. They can follow a set of rules and feel good about it. But the reality is if there has not been a reformation of the heart, a born-againness, the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you, you will not hold to any kind of standard of living. You will fall away. In my study, I came across one sermon uh, by Pastor John MacArthur I really appreciated who pointed out a story in the Old, Test, uh, Old, Old Testament where a man had uh, uh, actually in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 25, Amaziah, he had, uh, he had done everything, it says, right in the sight of the Lord, but he had not given him his heart. He did not follow the Lord with his whole heart. He had come, he had brought reformation, they had went to some battles, that God had given him some victories in those battles, but by the end, uh, after those battles, he, put, he picked up and he began to gather the idols from that nation of which he had uh, conquered, and he set them up uh, in his home, and he began to worship them, and it goes on to say that his life was a disaster in the end. In the beginning, he could put on the fake uh, the, the, the fake cloak of religion. He followed Yahweh, God. He did the reforms. But faced with wealth and success, he fell away from the Lord. Apostasy is all throughout the Old and the New Testaments, and it is certainly what we will focus in here on these five verses today. One commentator and pastor broke this paragraph down in a very helpful way by noticing that Paul gives us six features of apostasy, six features of apostasy. It's predictability, it's chronology, it's supernatural source, it's human purveyors, it's content, and it's error. So let's take a look here at the very first one, the feature of falling away that happens it is called its predictability. Take a look there in verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says. The Spirit explicitly says. There's not a time constraint on the Spirit's saying here. Only that the verb says that you have there in your scripture is in the present tense and the active voice telling us that the Spirit has said something and he continues to say it in the current time during the first century. 
church. That apostasy has and is coming is what, it is, what is being said there. This fact is heightened by the adverb uh, there that's adding to it, right? The adverb explicitly. That, ver- that, verb, that adverb could be translated expressly, clearly, unmistakably, or in express terms. It is certainly the Spirit of God's way of trying to get our attention, right? By not just saying the Spirit says, right? But the Spirit explicitly says. He, the, the writer is trying to grab our attention in this warning. This is the only place in the New Testament that the word is used and it is of utmost importance here. In other words, it is saying because we can read the scripture, we have the scripture, we can dig into the scripture, the spirit of God who speaks or breathes out the scripture has already said this. In the Old Testament, Daniel 7.25 and 8.23, the Holy Spirit predicted a specific apostasy to come when the Antichrist would deceive the saints by his blasphemous sayings, and they will, uh, and those saints will be given into the Antichrist's hands. Jesus, speaking of the same time in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, says uh, this, um, that uh, many false Christs would arise in verse 22 and will show signs and wonders in order to look at the word there or the words lead astray, if possible, the elect. The apostles, by the Holy Spirit, they told the church the same thing. They gave the same warnings. We see them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 2 Peter chapter 3, Jude 18. And in his second letter to Timothy at the church in Ephesus, the Spirit inspired Paul to say this in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time, notice, will come. We're expecting it. The Spirit has spoken. The Spirit is speaking. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will, there's the word, turn away their ears from the truth. And they will turn aside to myths. It is without a doubt this very reason that we are committed as a church, as I've already said this morning, to working through the text. Teaching through each line, each verse. It's easy to skip over difficult things. If you're just trying to entertain people and make people feel great about their morning, right? You don't come in and you don't teach about women's roles in the church and men's roles in the church, right? And what's apostasy and what's false teaching and what does it mean to fall away and are you saved, right? That's not popular. That doesn't gather a whole bunch of people. People don't want to hear that. They want to come and, uh, for the most part in the American culture and just be entertained. Make me feel good, Pastor. Sounds very familiar to 2 Timothy, doesn't it? They'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own, what? Desires. They will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So, beloved, the first feature that we must keep in mind is that the Holy Spirit predicted a time to come where there was going to be a great falling away. We have taken a quick look at that specific time, uh, that specific time to come, uh, but there is a great uh, apostasy that we have seen in, within that, and it's coming in the tribulation period. But what time frame is the Spirit communicating right here? That brings up the second feature of apostasy. Let's take note of it. It is its chronolo- chronology. 
The writer here says, the next clause, that in later times. Like the word explicitly, that adverb, the Greek adjective behind later, this is the only place that it is used, and it identifies an unspecified time. In later times. And notice the plural of times. That time is within the period of what the apostles called the last days. If you're a student of Daniel, you can go back and begin to break down the kingdoms and what you will find and what you will learn and understand is that in the last days, that is when Christ was rejected, that he died on the cross, it ushered in the last days, a period, right, of of. of of really kind of a Roman kingdom, although we would say, well, Rome has fallen. Much of Roman culture is what we are about today, and we expect that there will be a fifth kingdom coming to destroy that kingdom. We live in the last days. In 2 Timothy 3.1, the Spirit revealed this. It says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. There it is both, Right? The last days, the time that Christ, Christ ushered in at his death, and there will be multiple times, right? A plural of times to come. Notice that in 2 Timothy 3.1, that the apostle distinguishes those times from those last days. The last days were ushered in by the first coming of Christ and will conclude at his second coming and the establishment of his kingdom. In 1 John 2.18 the last days are referred to when John wrote it like this, verse 18. Children, it is, right now, right? The, 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 the present tense, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, that is future, right? Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Here is this dynamic of expecting that thing to come, but realizing we are in the last days. Peter referred to the inauguration of the last days when he wrote in 1 Peter 1.20 that Christ has appeared in these last times. And the writer of Hebrews was inspired to write Hebrews 1.2 saying, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So the inauguration of the last days was at Jesus' first coming, his first advent. And when will this period of last days come to an end? The writer of Hebrews tells us. In chapter 9, verse 26 through 28, take a look. Now once, that's back at Christ's coming, at the consummation of the ages, that is, he, Christ, has been manifested to, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Look there, will appear a second time for salvation. So beloved, we are in the last days. We are in the times where people's hearts will uh, be drawn away. They will, they will gather up teachers to tickle their ears. It will sound great. They will have great bands and music and huge congregations. And I pray that God would make us huge, that we might have a tremendous influence in the Word of God and in our city. Don't hear me saying that it's a bad thing to get large, right? It's let's get large for the right reason. Because the word of God that we would gather around would reform our lives in such a way 
that the world would look on and even those who are deceived by a false Christianity would look on and say, man, I can only fake this for so long. So the second feature of apostasy to take note of is its chronology. We live in the last days, beloved. And generally, in later times, that is the, the we live in this between ages. And notice where some will fall away from the faith. The verb to fall away from here, we've seen it in different forms in the Hebrew, and, and it shows up all over in the New Testament also is where the title of this sermon is derived from. It is a compound verb in the Greek which comes from the preposition apa, meaning from or stand away, out of, and the verb histemi, meaning to stand. Therefore, we put them together as this compound word and we have apa histemi. You can hear it there. To stand away from. The noun, which sounds similar, we, is where we derive the, the very word or the transliteration of the word apostasy. Where heresy is the teaching that is incorrect, and I would go on to say that there's probably, it is a strong word, it should be a strong word, this, the word heresy, right, is this idea that the teaching is wrong, it's why we would dig into the scriptures, it's why we might spend time learning the languages and getting a, a better education, because there's probably very likely that there's not a church in America or around the world today that won't teach some heretical thing. I do my best. Sometimes people say, well, hey, it distracts me. I even remember there was a lady a couple years ago. She didn't like the fact that I used notes uh, so much in my sermon. And, and I said, well, I'm sorry. I just don't want to stand up and say something wrong. Why do, I, why do I stick to my notes? Why do I study it out? Why do I write down every word? Because I want to think about the things that I want to say. And it's highly likely that there is some heretical thing that goes on in any church service on any given Sunday. That's heresy. It's a misteaching. It needs to be corrected. We're committed to that. We want to be. But apostasy is a decision to leave the core doctrines of the faith. Apostasy is, is directly hearing from the voice of God and, and looking at these tablets where the finger of God has, has written down, you shall not worship any idol. <laughs> and you turn around and say, I hear that. I believe that. You're my God, let's make an idol. That's apostasy. That's leaving. That's knowing the right thing to do and leaving it. The false teachers that followed the Apostle Paul around were attempting to cause people to leave Christianity behind where Paul had come in with a message of by grace you have been saved through faith, they would come in and say you must maintain the works of the law or you will not be saved. They were teaching that one could by their obedience, by their church attendance, by the way they dressed, the way they acted, by any kind of external like Amaziah, they could serve God and somehow that would make them righteous or give them a righteous standing before God. This teaching that one can attain heaven by being better, a better person would require a Christian to renounce the clear teaching of Christ who said, whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. 
the Holy Spirit would tell the church in Ephesians 2 that there was no place for good behavior as the source of a person's eternity in heaven. Saying this in verse 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The word charis in the Greek there is can be translated grace. It can be translated gift. It shows up in different forms. But it certainly is to shock our minds and eyes and ears to understand that it is a gift of God. Nothing that you can do will earn you anything. No amount of attendance, no amount of study, no amount of seminary. God graces you. And for those apostates to come along and then say, no, you must fulfill the work of the law, you must become circumcised, you must become a Jew, was apostasy. It was stood away from the faith. So it is here, the apostle warns young Timothy by reminding him that during the last days, in the later times, the days we live in right now, beloved, people will fall away. They will apostatize. They will leave the faith. And why? Look at number three. The third reason, the third feature of apostasy is that it has a supernatural source. The apostates are, look there, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paying attention is the same word that is translated addicted in uh, verse 8 of chapter 3 where it would require that a deacon cannot be addicted to wine. Same exact Greek word. You cannot be addicted to, you cannot be paying attention to uh, deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Why will they fall away? Because people will be doing that. It's in the present tense. They are going to want to just follow some other teaching, whether that's a teaching of the secular world, of some other religious organization. They are listening to the doctrines of demons. We might even translate that verse as addicted to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It brings in a different weight, right? It's one thing to struggle with something, some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of drug or alcohol or, or some kind of behavior. It's one thing to struggle with that. It's different to be addicted to it, right? I'm given to it. I'm going to, I am going to do that. I am not going to change my mind. And that is the idea here that the Spirit of God is pointing out is, is these, uh, these apostates have a supernatural source. And that source is, uh, is, is the doctrines of demons, the deceitful spirits, and people become addicted to it. Speaking of its supernaturalness in Ephesians 6, 12, we learn that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we'll remember that Paul told the Corinthians in light of the fact that, that this battle goes on, that it is something of supernatural, uh, supernatural source, he would tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5, for we... For though we walk in the flesh, right? We are in the flesh. He identifies with that. We do not war accordingly to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking, listen, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Think of that for a moment. Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. It is the third feature of apostasy. It has a supernatural source, apostasy does. As Christians, we must be on our guard, willing to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As I say, uh, as I've often said, the demons are not confused about the doctrine of Christ. They're not confused about the doctrine of God. They will just not obey it. They would love nothing more for you to be deceived into thinking that right knowledge about Christ will save you. How do these deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons deceive people? Through the fourth feature of apostasy, they're human purveyors. Notice in verse 2, who by means of the hypocrisy of liars... While the source of apostasy is clear in that it derives from demonic spirits, we see here that it takes a human person, a human being to communicate those things. I believe it's important or or, or something to at least consider that we understand that that it is not the person who is the demon, right? They They are channeling demonic thoughts of which we pour into our ears all the time. If you're listening to the news or watching all the things that are going on in the world, most likely all of that is deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, right? Uh, Battling, trying to produce in you some form of a worldview that is going to be not Christian, right? Not through the lens of Scripture. It's important to understand that that even though people would would, uh, say things that are very... Uh, anti-Christian in our minds, that we don't point just at them, that we would lead them to the text, that we would lead them to the truths of God. Much like a radio that receives a signal from a transmitter and gives voice to that signal through the speakers, the human being gives voice and action to the waves which they are attuned to. It's always been interesting to me That as we peek forward into Christ's second coming in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 and 2, we see some interesting things taking place. We see that Christ comes back and we see that Satan is bound by an angel at the beginning of the millennium and that reign of Christ for a thousand years. And in verse 3, it is interesting in that it tells us of the capacity of Satan's deceptive role in human beings' lives. Just like uh, the lies of deceptive spirits and demons come through the means of hypocrisy and of liars, we see in Revelation 20 what the capacity of Satan's deceptive role is. He says this, And he, that's the angel from verses 1 and 2, through him, that's Satan, into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that Notice here, he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. So we see an intriguing detail about Satan here. Whatever his influence is, although it is mystical to us, certainly, 
We do not understand that demonic realm. We get a picture of that a little bit in Daniel. We understand from the New Testament that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but, but against deceitful spirits. We see it here in the text that those deceitful spirits are, are coming through uh, hypocrites and liars, and they are speaking, and they are speaking, and they are speaking. They may be in a seminary. They may be in a Bible college speaking and speaking and speaking. They might be, uh, they are certainly in your public education and schools. And I guarantee you, uh, if you head off to some college somewhere, you will hear them speaking. Somehow, in however that spiritual realm and world works, Satan is speaking and his purpose is to deceive the nations. So, that's his role in these last days, to deceive the nations. And oddly, we do not see anything from this point forward in Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 3. If you go back and you'll study the 12, right, the book of the 12, the, the minor prophets, you'll find that within those books, you'll see that there's going to be a great time of peace that comes upon the earth. And we see very clearly that when Christ's feet hit the earth, right, and, and all of Israel is going to repent and they are going to say, look, they're going to look upon, Zechariah 14 says, the one whom they have pierced. But interesting, we find in, in those 12 books, this time of peace that begins to show up. A time where God rules and he reigns on his earth. A time that is clearly the fulfillment of, 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 of what we will see or have seen in Psalm chapter 2. Where God is going to set his king in Jerusalem. And the question, why are the nations raging, gets answered. Why do the peoples plot a vain thing? Because they have cast off the cords of God. But God scoffs, right? Psalm 2. And he says, I will set my king on my holy mountain. Just a few verses in Revela uh, later in Revelation 20, verse 7 through 8. Notice this again. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to do what? Deceive the nations. I don't understand it. I don't understand how demonic spirits work other than we understand the result and that is that they are deceiving, they are deceitful spirits. And everything that we think that we ought to be believing, we need to run through. We need to take the thought captive. We need to subject it to the word of God. Is that what God teaches about marriage? Is that what God teaches about gender? Is that what God teaches about truth? So friends, apostates, those who have chosen to leave Christianity are addicted to the radio waves coming straight out of the pit of hell. From the father of lies, the deceiver, the devil, and his minions. Because of that, they become hypocrites and they become liars. Why? Because those who they are tuned into, they are just tuned into that radio station. Those are liars. And the longer one chooses to listen to a lie, they have chose, They have looked at this even, even uh, uh, it's interesting scientifically that the longer you choose to listen to a lie and speak that lie, you actually believe that lie. They become seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. 
The imagery here is one that uh, if we listen long enough to that lie, it sears, it cauterizes the actual word that we get in the English. It cauterizes the conscience. It's a medical term, right? To stop the bleeding, to, to create a, essentially melting the wound, right? Stopping any bleeding from coming through that wound. And what is left but something that is seared, right? Somewhat of a branding iron. What did you, if you've ever been around cattle, that get branded, right? The, the hair no longer grows in that place and you could go up and you can tap on that spot and there's just no feeling left. That's what happens when we listen to lies for too long. Add to that the church's willingness. Add to this listening to lies this church's, the, the church's willingness to evidence entertainment culture on Sunday mornings rather than to teach a scripture. And it's no wonder that our kids are leaving the church faster than at any rate in Western history. We cannot think that we are going to send our kids to places that are going to lie and lie and lie. We cannot think that we are going to put them in front of, uh, of televisions and shows that are going to lie and lie and lie and lie and think that that is not going to cauterize and think that that is not going to, to uh, leave a seared conscience so that when they hear the word of God, they will either hate it or run from it. Beloved, I really encourage you to take time. This is something my boys are doing right now and fasting the influence of their phones. They're just fasting it. Just old school. Coming home, we have a place, a charging station, and they're plugging it in and they're leaving it right there. They're not taking it to their rooms. They're not carrying it around, getting distracted constantly. And what they're finding is they've got more and more and more time to read books that are healthy, to do things that are healthy. You'd probably be really surprised at how often you are allowing that influence into your life. It's interesting to me that, this, that Satan, in this dispensation, in this time, is deceiving the nation. Beloved, the text reveals here that in the later times, some will fall away from Christianity because they have seared their consciences by constantly paying attention to deceitful spirits. And what did those doctrines of demons look like in the first century church at Ephesus? Not much different than they do today. Cold, dead religion that looks spiritual on the outside but rejects God on the inside. So the fifth feature of apostasy is its content. In that time, they were men who forbid marriage and advocated abstaining from foods. During my study, the thought was brought to my attention that uh, we as Christians might expect to see some kind of major theological topic show up here, right? Something like the deity of Christ they're rejecting or the doctrine of salvation, but as one commentator noted, Satan is so subtle and seeks to gain a foothold on territory more easily yielded. It looks a little bit spiritual, so let me get a hold of that. What I eat, how I look. Without a doubt, we are to understand that these apostates are the same people who are caught up in the myths and endless genealogies from chapter 1, which gave rise to endless speculation and that they wanted to be teachers of the law, found in 1 Timothy 1, verse 7. 
There's some kind of mixture of false teaching that had to do with following some rules and you'll be saved. In this verse, though, we see that the apostates are men who practice asceticism. They forbade marriage and stayed away from food. Now, here's the trickiness of this. And I believe what the, one, the commentator said, Satan is so subtle, he seeks to gain a foothold on territory more easily yielded. And why does he do that? Is because he's forever using a little bit of truth to get his way into the door, right? Just a little bit of truth. And then I can twist it, and then we can twist it, and then we go further down the road, and next thing you know, we've apostatized. We believe something that is not true. Both of these life choices, forbidding marriage and Staying away from food can be good, right? They can be good. If someone is gifted with singleness, they should stay single. Not to, uh, not, uh, to attain to the identity of singleness, but rather to, uh, so that they would fully serve the Lord without a distraction of marriage. Paul encouraged this in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, uh, verses 25 through 35. He encouraged, hey, if you are gifted to stay single... If you don't have a desire to chase somebody of the opposite sex, the world would probably just tell you, well, you're, 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 you're same-sex attracted. The Lord might be saying, set your life aside to go and serve him wherever and whenever and however. So there's something good that could happen from that. We see it in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul wishes that all people would be just like him, assumedly single, focused completely on going from town to town, sharing the gospel. It can be good. Also, correct dieting, how many of you know, and fasting are encouraged along with, uh, along with prayer, and that is a healthy lifestyle. I read some articles as I was getting ready for this that say that some people who just completely get away from kind of the American diet that will take on a beans and greens kind of, kind of uh, a diet in life can add up to 10 years to their lives just by eating like that. There's certainly certain foods, right, that are going to cause us to uh, uh, die faster, to not live out, live very long, right, to be extinguished. <laughs> I like a lot of them. Unfortunately, pizza is not on that list of good things. So it can be good to, to diet. It can be good to stay away from some foods and, or even completely from food at all. Fasting uh, was encouraged along with prayer. Jesus taught on fasting in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, saying, whenever you fast, assuming that you would fast, Right? Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they uh, neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, assuming that you will, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. So beloved, not being married and abstaining from some foods can be good. However, it is when those two truths are twisted in such a way that one must do them to be saved that causes grave concern. Any work that results in salvation is apostasy. Any work. And you think, oh, well, what's the matter if I tell somebody to eat a little less of that or a little more of that? What's the matter 
if you're married. This is what sets every occult apart from Christianity. They use a little truth to get in the door. And they lead people astray. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. See, there's just enough Jesus in there. The Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They, they take a horrible translation, German translation of Yahweh, turn it into Jehovah, and they hook people. Just a little bit of truth in there. Or the widespreading, or we better know it as the Catholic, all-knowing church, which ironically requires its priests to remain unmarried and abstain from foods on certain days. All these use a little Jesus language to hook you into their teaching. Then each one of them tells you that you cannot trust your Bible. You, can, uh, you must add their church councils their Bible translations, or their additionally inspired books so that you can attain to salvation. They add to their heresy a few rules for living which makes people feel spiritual and that always leads to a works-based salvation. It results in apostasy. Essentially, they're saying exactly what Satan told Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? Come on. If you'll just listen to me here a little bit, I'll tell you the whole truth. God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want to, you to experience everything that's out there. You just need to add this little book here. You need to read the right translation. They'll fix all these problems that are before you. There was an early teaching in the first century biblical regions that these apostates may have been on the front edge of teaching. In the second and third centuries, it became full-blown and known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a translation of the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, but the kind that is always growing. We talked about the other kind last week, a knowledge that you were to memorize and to know. This is kind of a mystical knowledge, a, a knowledge that's like growing in a relationship that continues to grow and we continue to know each other and we continue in our growing to know one another. And, and that was the idea that spurred into Gnosticism, very simplified. It was a teaching that anything in the flesh, i.e. marriage and food, was bad. It was more spiritual to deny the flesh. Asceticism is what we call that. And seek a higher knowledge a mystical state of spiritualism. This may have been what Paul was addressing when he instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, when he said, remain on, that's to Timothy, at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And we may just be seeing that develop right there. Not quite sure what's going on there, but that's a strange doctrine, right? Or maybe it was just strange and that it was wrong doctrine. Either way, Verse 4 says, nor to pay attention to myths. And again, at the end of the letter, 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 through 21, where Timothy was to avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. There's the word gnosis. Which some have professed and thus, look there, gone astray from the faith. 
was that early religion. It was that early heresy that began to spur up in the church. And John writes about it. First, second, and third John is warning the church, do not go into that. He gives first John as a whole list of how you can know that you're know that you're saved. And a lot of it is to, due to what is going on here with this Gnostic teaching, this idea that you just the flesh is bad. It even grew into the point where they would celebrate or teach that Christ certainly could not have come in the flesh because everything that's flesh is bad. That was full-blown Gnosticism. And it will lead people astray from the faith. Beloved, the fifth feature of apostasy is its content. Men who forbade marriage and advocate abstaining from foods represents a very dangerous pattern that we see throughout Christian history. If you dress like this, if you, if you worship on this day, if you eat this food, read from this specific Bible or book, then you will be more spiritual than the others. This kind of thinking may have had some truth in it and probably does, but when fully blown, it can and certainly does lead to apostasy. It works based salvation. This leads to the sixth feature of apostasy, it's error. Notice, in its opposition to abstaining from marriage and food, uh, which it says there, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with grat- gratitude. Beloved, the greatest error God's people make is to buy into some lie from the devil that says that the, op- uh, the opposite of what God has proclaimed In verse 3, marriage and food are to be gratefully shared in. And why? Verse 4, everything is created by God is good and everything is, uh, is to be accepted if it is received with what? Gratitude. Everything is okay. And why? It is, uh, and how? For it is sanctified, that is made clean by the means of the word of God and prayer. Beloved, anyone who tells you that you must live in one way or another because it will make you righteous in the sight of God is apostate. Christ and Christ alone fulfilled the righteous demands of the law found in the Old Testament. So we must be careful when we go back into the Old Testament law as it pertains to the instructions for living. We may find what is being prescribed there to Israel is helpful for us today. We may find wisdom in that prescription of which they were commanded to follow, but we have no mandate on our lives or hearts to follow that. Christ came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled it. The law is not required of us, and especially for salvation. We may find good things in it. There is certainly wisdom there. The Spirit of God told his church at Colossians, or at Colossae, this in chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. This is a place that you ought to have memorized for this particular struggle as we see it come up over and over in the church. It says this, Colossians 2, 16 through 18, Therefore, No one, how many people? No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. 
things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here comes the warning. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. So when they come and knock on your door and they tell you you're reading the wrong Bible and you need a different kind of Bible and a few other books, they come and they tell you, man, you worship on the wrong day. You're worshiping on the wrong day. It's got to be on the Sabbath. (laughs) Don't get tricked, beloved. Just have Colossians 2, 16 through 18 burnt into your psyche, right? Christ fulfilled the law. Beloved, the world and its religions would tell you, celebrate your truth. If you do that, you will fall away from the truth. The world is nothing more than a conduit for the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, drawing you in, drawing you in, searing your heart. I encourage you, run. Run to the Word of God. Memorize it. Read it. Stay in it. Obedience to God's Word without heart reformation often leads to cold and dead religion. Apostasy always looks spiritual on the outside, but it rejects God on the inside. Beloved, are you born again? Are you just coming to church because it's what you do on Sunday? Maybe you grew up in the church. You can only hold that line for so long. The pressures of this life, like Amaziah, (laughs) will come in and pride will rise up and you, uh, your true heart will be revealed. Have you been born again? It is God's desire. It's what will save you from getting hooked by some kind of weird doctrine that tells you that if you do the right thing, you'll be saved. If in our hearts we celebrate God's truth, we will not commit apostasy, amen? Your friends won't commit it. Our churches won't commit it. If we stick to the gospel, if we understand that God regenerates, that you are a new creature in Christ, and that Christ paid it all, He will save us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And um, Lord, this message, this message of a warning to help us to understand better what apostasy is, where it comes from, how it plays out in the lives of people. Lord, I pray that if we have been drawn away in some unhealthy way, God, that you would reveal that to us by your spirit. Give us the grace, Lord, to repent. And to walk in newness of life with you, Lord, we'll give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.